there. And so many of them would say that right now, it's one of the biggest struggles of being in the campus environment is you just have so many students leaving the faith and the ones who remain are, are just so disoriented by that, right? This idea of, of deconstructing faith, which is, which is just so prominent right now. Um, that, of course, has impact for the person who, who is experiencing that, but those around them are also impacted by that. And that seems to be one of the things going on here. And so for that and, and a bunch of other reasons, this has just felt like a word in season for us. And, and so these practicalities, though, the, the point landing that in today's text is these practicalities are especially relevant in, in times such as we're living in. These, we are surrounded by extraordinary circumstances. It was just on the members' meeting this last Wednesday, and the image that I used was uh, that of a storm that we have largely come out of. We've looked around, assessed the damage, and now there's another storm coming. I had no idea, could not have imagined in a million years, that as I got on that members' meeting, all of our phones would be lighting up, all of our computers would be buzzing with all of these various warnings, um, and then all of us living through what we just lived through, right? Like, to me, uh, this week was the week where the metaphorical storm that we've all been living through devastatingly, unbelievably became this, this actual storm that we're all now living in the impact of. Um, and so, man, what, what do the scriptures say to that, right? Like, is, is God capable of speaking into situations such as that. And I would truly commend this letter back to those of you especially impacted by this last week to say, right, things, things that we've heard even recently, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus has guided his people through seasons such as this. The people of God, right, have endured in the midst of tremendous suffering of literally the book of Hebrews mentions loss of property as something that the people of God have had to endure through through the ages. One of the encouragements of this book is that there is no suffering with, with which Jesus himself is not familiar. And there is no suffering with which the people of God are not familiar. Now here's what that doesn't do. It doesn't lessen the reality of the pain of experiencing that stuff yourself. It doesn't lessen the shock when it's suddenly you and your things and your memories. It doesn't um, undo the, the grief of watching uh, things that you thought were secure suddenly be gone from you. And yet what it does do is it reminds you that there is a God who can be sufficient in his grace to provide, to actually allow you to put one foot in front of the other as you process through that type, who is with you and especially near to you, right? Like the scriptures make promises to those who are in that place that the presence of God will be particularly manifest in that place of mourning, in that place of pain and tears. And also to remember this beautiful image that right at the beginning of the, the second to last chapter of Hebrews 12 gives us that there is this great cloud of witnesses and I can't help but think that there are those who, who the, in that cloud of witnesses who are particularly familiar with our pain, who get to the front of line or get close to the front row of our pain and suffering and say, I've been there and God has seen me through it and now I'm here on the other side of that and I'm telling you, it's worth it. Right? That's the witness that that, that, that crowd bears, that that 
cloud of witness, right? What a beautiful image that that cloud that is ever with us is saying it's worth it. Keep going. And so it might not lessen the pain, but there is hope. There is truth that can carry us in seasons like this. Our passage today uh, is kind of consists of, of three distinct parts that seem so kind of random. And, and I imagine they probably are. And I don't want to do too much work to try and connect these because you can imagine that an ancient writer uh, with only so much, right, can't run out to Staples for more writing materials. These things are precious. Probably comes to the end of his letter and he probably gives it a couple of tries, probably adds things on. And so the, the kind of disconnectedness of this is probably because this was a letter not written in one fell swoop like we think of email that you fire away and the thing is complete as it is. This was something that was thought through. And you can almost imagine the writer going back and saying, oh yeah, I should probably mention that. Oh yeah, this benediction works really well at the end of my... Oh yeah, I forgot to mention these couple personal things. Um, and yet, I think that all three have really profound truth for us in a season such as we are in. These opening, uh, or really the, the opening verse, um, is the kind of verse you feel weird preaching. Can I just name that at the front end here? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I don't know why you're all laughing, right? Um, why is that awkward? It's awkward because it's weird to tell people when you're in a leadership. I mean, my title here is lead pastor, right? So, like, I'm definitely one of these mentioned here. Obey and submit. Um, it's weird, right? It's also weird because there's some sobering things in here for me. And so I, I want to talk about those things. Um, obey your leaders and submit to them. First of all, this is not talking about uh, like weird, mindless, mind control, brainwashing kind of obedience. Uh, that is never the ideal in Christian community. There is the reality that uh, any leaders of any Christian community that has ever existed anywhere are flawed people. And at the end of the day, just people, not messiahs, not Jesus in the flesh at all. Instead, the, the, the words here, obey and submit, are actually not the words that are normally used in the New Testament to, to express these ideas. Uh, this is not the obedience that is due to God. This is more like um, follow after. And really everything, if you even remember, the, the broad image that Hebrews is using is, is one of being on the way, of a journey, that the people of God are journeying in the wilderness toward promised land. And the image that's gotten at here of obey and submit really goes along with that image. It's the idea of um, generally trusting the direction and following where this person is leading. Also, the idea submit is, is not the normal New Testament word for submit. Instead, it really has this idea of, of yielding to someone's authority. So the image that really comes to mind here is like, I don't know if you've ever been on a guided hike. Um, I haven't, but I'm about to use the image. So there you go. But I imagine that on a hike, there's this person that actually knows what they're talking about, right? Like, and actually knows the direction where you're supposed to go and knows the best places to stop off and all that stuff. Right, like, and, and the idea when you're on a hike is not that suddenly, because this person has like a park ranger badge on or something, that you have to do everything that that person says in some kind of mindless way. Right? Like, that's not the kind of submission and obedience that you're expecting to exercise for this person, is that 
for the next four hours, anything could happen. You know, like, let's hope we don't have some, like, maniac who's leading us or whatever, because I have to obey this person. No, what's the general idea? You're generally going to trust that they know the way that they're going. Now, look, here's the reality. When things get a little squirrely on a hike and weather pulls in and all that stuff, probably that, that dynamic is even going to decrease in terms of your willingness to just outright trust. And so, yeah, there's going to be a little bit more dialogue there. There's going to be a little bit more, are you sure that this is the, are you sure that we need to stop right now? I feel like we should, right? There's going to be, and that, that, that doesn't violate something. In fact, a good guide would expect that when anxiety goes up, when conditions change, that there would be greater interchange between them and the group that they're leading. I think that that's a helpful image, right? Like even the idea that um, in, in the vast majority of times where elders are talked about specifically, and, and we're a church that is led by a board of elders, almost always the image that is used for those elders is what, you know? Shepherds. That's the image that's almost always. And, and again, it, it's this idea of following. Now, we have, uh, we have lived through a year where conditions changed, did they not? <laughs> where we went through some stuff. And I can tell you that, um, that the dynamic in this church of feedback, of people wondering, hey, is that really the right way to go, increased. And we would have done a poor job if we had not anticipated that and been okay with that, right? I will also tell you this, right? Like, I feel like, uh, I feel like George Washington. Um, can I be real a second for just a millisecond? Let down my guard and tell the people how I feel a second? That's for all you Hamilton fans out there. Uh, this has been the hardest year to lead through by far without a close second, you know, in my almost decade of leading here at Jacob's Fall. If you have led anything, if you have had any responsibility for anyone, if you've just led a home, a single household, you know that this year has been the hardest year. And we have had uh, an enormous um, amount, at least in our experience, for what we have experienced as leaders at Jacob's Well, we've had a lot of people leave. And I want to tell you, that really, really, really hurts. And it doesn't hurt um, because, uh, well, it hurts for all kinds of reasons, right? The primary hurt that I'm not getting at, though, is that if you leave Jacob's Well, you have done something horrible and sinful, and you have wounded me, and how dare you, right? Like, this, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying it's because of what this says about leadership. It says, we're going to give an account. Right? Like those of us who are called to lead. And by the way, this is a pretty broad term here. He could have just narrowed this to say elders. He's talking about leaders. He's talking about people who have responsibility here. And I will say that I have never invited someone into greater responsibility here at Jacob's Well without them trembling a little bit about the increase of responsibility because of the realities that this and many other texts in the New Testament talk about, that we will give in account. That's a good thing. You should be encouraged by that. To know that I don't know of a single person who carries significant weight in this church who does not regularly express a sense of inadequacy in that, a sense of righteous um, sobriety in that. It's a good thing good culture to have. And so in a year like this, where we have had to face challenges 
that none of us could have ever possibly imagined. We have felt that weight. And I want to say two things, and this is why this is really hard. Um, By the way, this is where preaching through the Bible verse by verse is like... um, this is why we do it because I wouldn't preach this by the way. Like I would, I just wouldn't go here. I would just like, um, cause this is weird. This is weird for me. This is like not my natural tone, but I do want to say there, there's two things going on here. One is that this says that leaders should feel an enormous sense of responsibility for the community. We are going to give an account. I don't know what that means, but I think it's meant to terrify me and others. And, and it's doing that job, right? There's another side to this, right? What this says is to obey and submit to your leaders. And what I said was that doesn't mean be a brainwashed, uh, just go along with us kind of lemming. What it does mean, though, is it says let them do this with joy and not with groanings because that would be of no advantage to you. Um, gosh, how do I even do this? Um, I'll say this. I think that what this is saying is if you are part of a community, and especially if you are a member of that community and signed up to say, yes, I am in here, you should be bent toward trust of your leaders, right? On the, on the meter of trust to distrust, you should be bent towards trust. Not over here, because that's wacky stuff, right? Like they make podcasts about that, right? Like we're not going to be that, right? But also this, does damage to a community. For your fundamental disposition to be distrust and suspicion of the leaders that God has appointed in your community is actually not carrying out your side of what Christian church unity looks like. Now look, I could caveat that to death. Let me give you one. If you find yourself in that place, it is a valid thing to leave a community and say, maybe I just don't belong here. Because there are Christian communities absolutely unworthy of your trust. There are. And Christian leaders unworthy of your trust. Right? Like, that's a thing in reality. It is not on me, by the way, to tell you whether Jacob's Well is that or not. What I can say is, if you're here, I think before God, there needs to be work in your heart if you feel like that meter is going here. And part of that work at least has to be expressing that to your leaders. And saying, I'm sensing that I'm moving toward distrust. Those were some of the hardest conversations I had this last year. And some of those people left. Can I tell you, that's the right way to leave, though? Is to express that. To have the hard conversation. To check assumptions and expectations against the reality of what's going on. And then make a good decision about whether you're going to stay or whether you're going to go. I could push that just a little farther, I can remember so many times where our founding pastor, who, by the way, was back in Jersey and got stuck in his car and had to be rescued by firemen. I was like, welcome back, Reed, right? Like, um, if you think of it, if you know Reed, reach out to him and be like, sorry, Reed, New Jersey apologizes, right? Like, um, he's okay, though. I can remember so many times Reed saying that he would watch stuff uh, of pastor friends of his I'll just say it, especially down south, in like Pastor Appreciation Month, which is October. And he would always be like, October. I'll give you a second. 
And he'd kind of do that, right? And he'd kind of be like, and and I feel a little weep womp between that. Because you know what we think of that? We Northeasterners, Jersey people? Pastor Appreciation Month? I'm sorry. Until it's me appreciating month, I ain't doing nothing for Pastor Appreciation Month, right? Like, um, or we think that that's hokey Southern Christian culture stuff, if I can be real, right? And then I remember one time where Reed said, do you know what I really like? I like uh, the Christmas tree Reese's. And my man walked into his office one day with a pile of those. And I remember saying, I almost dissolved into tears, right? Um, I'm not, by the way, I don't like Reese's trees. (laughs) Um, Can I not speak on behalf of me? Can I speak on behalf of our entire leadership team, the elders and staff here? I'm thinking particularly of. Um, This has not been a particularly joyful season. That's not on you. That's not on you. Um, this has been a really hard season to lead through. A lot of us are really weary. I've had really scary conversations with a lot of our leaders who kind of want to bail and say, I, I don't know if I'm in this anymore. Um, would, you, would you just think about what it might look like to encourage one of them? Right? Myself, Pastor Minoj, Pastor Rich, Morgan, Rachel, any, any of the staff. I mean, there's a lot of leaders here. Our directors of care, our directors of community, now people in the back who do their thing, people up here, right? Would you, would you just add a little bit of joy? Because that's lacking right now. And the scriptures say, your leaders are at their best. Uh, Jalen in the back, there he is. Um, your leaders are at their best when, uh, when we're operating from a place of joy. Can I get an amen from the leaders, amen. right? Like, like, we need that. Um, and I don't know what that's going to... You know what's so interesting about this? Is it says that if, though... You, you force your leaders to operate from a place of groaning, which, again, that's not on you. Our groaning has had very little to do with y'all. We love y'all. Um, our groaning has to do with, you know, everything else, um, global pandemics and such. Um, what's so interesting is it doesn't say it's of no benefit to us as leaders. That's so interesting. Look at it again. It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you to you as a community, right? Like, you want leaders operating from a place of joy. You ever, <laughs> maybe the answer is yes, because you've heard me do this, right? Like, have you ever heard someone get up and preach and you can tell they're mad at someone in the church? <laughs> like, that's like a, right? Like, they make podcasts about that, right? Like, you don't want that, that thing, right? Like, you, you don't want a leaders versus the community. That's what this is saying. Um, and I think it's saying this because I bet the church at Hebrews leaders were, were sucking wind at this time. Um, and it's saying, hey, now's probably a good time to do that whole, encourage them, do that whole, do that from a place of joy. I want to name two challenges to doing that. One is I know that very few of you feel like you have much overflow to do that. I'll just name that. Right? Like, why are we not more encouraging to each other? Is it just because we're surly New Jersey people? It's like, no, we're all exhausted, right? But keep in mind that in God's purposes, the church is meant to be the primary source of encouragement in all of our lives. And so as far as your church goes, and as far as the health and culture of your church goes, that's going to impact all of us, right? If I can make a little argument for why this might be a priority for you. Here's the other thing that makes this really hard. I get that we are living in a season where there are a lot of questions being asked about how power is used and carried out in the church. And maybe the only thing that I can tell you there is 
that stuff has not gone unnoticed by us, has not caused us to do some soul searching, has not caused us to ask some questions about the history of our church. And, and I just want to, if I can, and this isn't necessarily my, my prerogative to do, but hey, Mike's on me, right? Like, um, we have tried really hard to say, where does this stuff exist in our church and what does it look like for us to move forward uh, in terms of doing better, move forward in terms of handling power with, with the grace and humility that we're called to, aware not just that, oh, we don't want the whatever cultural narrative to, to um, end up whatever, canceling us to use the lingo of it. No, 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 because we're going to give an account to God. And some of this stuff is a good thing to set us back and say, okay, before God, not before the, the audience of, of culture or social media or Twitter or whatever, but before God. How does power get handled here, right? And I get that those of you who have any idea of what I'm talking about um, probably sit in a place where maybe you find your dial a little bit moving toward that distrust thing. And I want to say some of that's good. Some of that's good. What the scriptures say is you got to work hard to get back to a place where when we say, hey, this is where we're headed, you say, I generally trust that your intentions are good and I will follow where you lead. The next section (laughs) says, pray for us. There you go. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. By the way, I just love that. Does anybody talk that way? The sooner. Uh, pray for us. What he's saying here, uh, biggest thing that I would highlight here is this scene, This adds a little bit to the mystery of what's going on with this writer vis-a-vis this community. He seems to be separated from them for some kind of reason. And whatever that reason is, he says, look, we are pretty confident that we are doing things the right way. Pray that that would keep going because whatever has forced them out of the community is likely making them ask questions about, is what we're doing the right thing? Couple, couple possibilities of what's going on here. One is that the community itself has cast this person out and said, maybe there was a power struggle in the community and someone within that community said, no, this, this person, this pastor, whoever has to go. And now he's writing back saying, look, I think that those of us who are cast out of the community, I think we're doing the right thing, but would you pray for us so that we can really examine that in our hearts? That's one possibility. The other possibility is that they've been cast out of the community precisely because their leaders and the local authority said, you gotta go. Um, and you can't lead here anymore, and the church is still gathering in spite of losing some of its leaders. In the same case, they're saying, look, we think that continuing, probably what's going on here is we think that continuing to be faithful, to not recant on our faith, to not say what the authorities want to say is the right thing, but you can imagine that struggle to say, well, if we just said this one thing, you know, cross our fingers behind our back, we'd be back with you. But we think we're going about this the right way. Either way, you see that you see precisely some of the humility that is called for in the prior verses operating in these people to say, we think what we're doing is the right thing, but would you pray so that we can be even more certain that that's the case? And he says, and please keep praying because look, at the end of the day, we do want to be with you. We want to be restored to you and the sooner. I expect him to say the sooner the better, but just the sooner, right? Um, one thing that I love here that I would highlight here, Rachel and I were just uh, reshooting the discipleship course content. And in the, the spiritual discipleship 
uh, one of the things that we talked about a lot is prayer, but uh, I think that sometimes one of the most fundamental things that we as Western people get wrong about prayer is that we say that prayer is not about changing God, it's about changing us, full stop. As though prayer is this exercise in um, external processing that then leads us to some kind of clarity, healing, or insight as we just verbalize what's going on with us. I think some of that is absolutely the case, right? Like prayer is about us. Prayer is about, uh, we'll talk about this as we work through the Lord's Prayer. That's where we'll head in the fall. We'll go uh, line by line through the Lord's Prayer. And I do think that largely something like the Lord's Prayer is meant as we pray it to change us, to change our priorities, to change our view of God, to change our view of ourselves, of our neighbors, of our community. So yes, amen. There's, but when we put a full stop behind that and say that prayer actually doesn't affect anything, that prayer doesn't have any, um, any agency itself in the world because God's going to do what God's going to do, that's just not the biblical picture of prayer. It doesn't line up with Jesus's teaching about prayer. It doesn't line up with Paul's teaching on prayer. And it doesn't even line up with something as simple as this, where I don't think that what he's saying is, please pray that we would be restored to you so that, I don't know, So that you're changed, right? Like he's expecting that their prayers will change circumstances. And when we lose that edge and over theologize, over philosophize, over secularize, over whatever eyes, the power of prayer, it is no wonder that by and large, we are a prayerless people more often than not. Because if prayer doesn't do anything, and all it is is this external processing, well, then I can just talk to a friend, I can just journal, I can just muse in my own head, I can go for a nice long walk. Why pray? Why talk into the air at a wall? Because you're not talking into the air at a wall. You are talking to the creator of the universe. You are talking to the only one who can actually move and change things. And somehow, if you want to theologize it, in the strange purposes of God, part of the means of him acting in the world is our prayers. That's what the scriptures say and model in moments like this for us. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? And if you say you believe that, do your prayers betray that belief? Does your prayerlessness betray that belief? Or does it demonstrate it? Does it give it life? Does it enliven it? Do you say, yes, I believe that prayer actually impacts, that it is the means Not always, right? Like unanswered prayer is absolutely a biblical category. God is not a genie in a bottle. This is not, right? This is is part of the mystery of faith. And yet there are circumstances and so often it is only people who have committed themselves to a life of prayer. By the way, we'll define that all fall, what a life of prayer is, because I think in many of our minds, it's just just a bridge too far. It's just a hill too too high to climb. And and that's because I think we have the wrong image of what a life of prayer is. But if you have committed yourself to that, your answer to yes, prayer changes things is probably not just biblically based. It's experiential. You go, I don't know how, but I know it was when we gave ourselves to praying hard in the circumstance that somehow the circumstances changed. That's not prosperity gospel nonsense. That's not pie in the sky. That is biblical faith to believe that prayer can and does change things. That's why he asked them to pray for him. 
Next thing that he does is he gives them a benediction, right? We end our gatherings with a benediction, uh, a benediction, uh, bene, uh, which if you know kind of any other language other than English, you know, is, is good, right? Like benefit, right? Like a good thing. Benediction. What is diction? It's talking, right? It's a good word. It's the good word at the end of gathering. The blessing uh, is, is what he's giving them here. What's cool about this benediction is uh, it's a beautiful summary of the book. It's a summary of the book, but just different enough that almost all scholars agree he's probably plucking this from somewhere. He's probably getting this from somewhere. This might have been like what, you know, like, I don't know, Obed wrote up on a Sunday or something in in one of their gatherings. This is probably something used in in corporate worship at that time that was familiar to them. Think of like song lyrics, like like the song that we just sung before, um, Fix My Eyes, is a beautiful summary of Hebrews and would be a great way even to, to kind of summarize this book. So he's probably taking this up. But what we see here is there's so many links that I almost picture this writer knows that he's, you know, 90% done with this letter. And then he's sitting in a Sunday gathering in some other place and he hears this read over the community and he says, that's how I'm ending the letter. And here's what he writes. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace, this is one of uh, also the Apostle Paul's favorite descriptions of God, specifically God the Father, that God is the God of peace, the God of, uh, in the Greek language, it's a beautiful word, irene, uh, in the in the Hebrew language, probably one that if you've been around Christian, you're even more familiar with the God of Shalom, the God of holistic flourishing, the God who intends in all things for for there to be this wovenness together of His purposes with the realities of earth. May that God, the the only God who really offers what so many of us chase after our whole lives, meaning and satisfaction and contentment. A very small person this week who's sitting in in that row um, say to me, uh, if I could just have that one toy, um, I would be complete, right? Like, do we not resonate? I was like, oh my goodness, this is me. This is me. I'm raising this, right? Like, because I believe this. I believe that that next thing will give me peace, will give me satisfaction and contentment and complete. Right, like, and we chase after this our whole lives. The next promotion, if I'm this cool, if I have this relationship, if this person is attracting me, whatever it is, spend our whole lives saying, "Oh, if I could just know that restedness of soul." That's something that only comes with God, and it only comes because God Himself is committed to doing that in our lives. Listen to what it says. Who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus? Very cool here. Little language thing is normally. Uh, in like 97% of cases where the resurrection of Jesus is talked about, God is said to raise him from the dead. In this case, what, what are the words there in the English? What does it say, Ryan Fisher? Brought. Yeah, brought again. It's this interesting word. Brought again is far more this word of, of um, picking something up and, and bringing it back to somewhere, right? Like, oh, this... You know, stand was moved from there. Okay, I, I'm going to bring it back. Why that language? What's really cool about that language 
is it's language that is most often used uh, in, in the context, guess what, of like shepherding, that you bring back a, a sheep. Do you notice who the shepherd of the sheep is here, though? Is it God? It's Jesus. Okay, so, so the, the benediction is toying with this image that says that in this, remember, our, our overriding image is journey. Our overriding image is we live in wilderness and God is taking us somewhere. He's taking us to promised land. And it says the first thing that needed to happen for that to happen is that God first needed to bring Jesus forward. He needed to lead Jesus from death to life. And then he appoints Jesus himself to then be our shepherd. In other words, insofar as God has brought Jesus from death to life, he is now bringing us from death to life, that that's what it requires for you to even be on a journey towards something. And if there's any theological truth about you, especially you follower of Jesus, that Hebrews has been at pains to show us is that Christianity, while it gets us from one place to another, it doesn't do that by upgrading us. It doesn't do that by saying, man, you're pretty bad at journeying through life. Let me give you a little upgrade package. Let me increase your Robux, which are big in our home, the game Roblox, right? Like let's, uh, let's increase your, your coins, um, as it were, so that you can, can, can get a, a cooler tricked out self that can actually get from there to there faster, more powerfully. No, 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 no. That's not the image. What makes you someone who is capable of going from one place to another is not an upgrade package. It is that you have been brought from death to life. You weren't walking. It wasn't that you weren't walking as well as you should have. No, it wasn't even that you weren't walking. It was that you weren't breathing spiritually. That's what it takes to make you someone who can have the audacity to say, I am journeying with God, yes, in the wilderness, but towards something because he has breathed breath in my lungs that wasn't there before. If you need something less than resurrection, you are not dealing with Christianity. You are dealing with a wellness program. You are dealing with a self-esteem program. You are dealing with an upgrade package. That's not what Christianity is. That's not the benediction. That's not the good word. That's not a good word. If all you get is an up, if, if you're breathless, if you're dead, you don't need an upgrade package, right? Uh, I won't go with that image. Um, you, you don't need that, right? Like you need life. You need breath in your lungs. And so he says, the God of peace brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Do you know how you came to life? God shed blood on your behalf. He shed blood for you. One of the most important questions that we have revisited again and again in this letter is, what is your image of God? When you think of God, what comes into your mind? If it is not one who is willing to go to the uttermost, right? Like my wife and I were just talking about this, right? Like, and we're not perfect parents, but, but we're okay. And we're saying that there is a kind of love that a parent ideally has for a child that's just fierce in a way that like you just haven't experienced before. And I can attest, uh, my in-laws are sitting there, that grandparents, you say like, uh, the only thing that compares is probably the love of grandparent for a grandchild. There's this fierceness. There's this I, I, we were watching, the reason why this came to mind is we were watching a movie and the person said, I love you more than life. And I said, yeah, that's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a, 
that, that, uh, you see that in the parent-child, in the grandparent-grandchild relationship. If that's not the kind of love, and yet when we think of God, so often what comes into our mind is a toe-tapping authority figure that we're terrified of who is just waiting for us to fail. When he is a fierce lover of our souls who literally can say to us, I love you more than life because I chose you over my life. That's the image of God that should come into our minds because that's what it cost him to take you from spiritual death to spiritual life, right? He didn't snap his fingers. He's, he, this didn't cost him a, a magic trick. This didn't cost him a little exertion of energy and power. Don't forget that the reason why one of those is in just about every community that's gathering all over the world right now is that's where our image of God starts. That's the fundamental image. Who is God? We go, he's there. Right? That's why when we say, where is God in suffering? The answer is, he, he's there in suffering. Because our image of God starts with an image of suffering. It starts with an image of brutality. It starts with an image of exclusion. It starts with an image of marginality. That's where he is. That's why you can have hope when all seems lost, when all is literally lost, when you lose your possessions. Where is God? Where is God? He is weeping with you. He is suffering with you. Because he lost it all. Because he thought you were worthy. Maybe not your stuff was worthy, but you were worthy of being called home and ultimately making it to promised land one day. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen, amen, amen. Here's the beautiful thing. We've been working with this image in Hebrews that life is a journey. And at some point, I took that from a horizontal image of going from one place to another to a vertical image of climbing up a mountain. Hopefully you remember this. If you don't, I've failed you. Um, right? Like We're climbing this mountain. And uh, the only reason why we're even on a climb is because we've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. At the top of that mountain is what the book of Hebrews envisions as promised land, new heavens and new earth, a completely restored world, perfect relationship with God. And Jesus has gone before us. He's our forerunner. He's blazed the trail. He's our lead climber in this image who has gone before us and put the spokes in or whatever those things are called. Uh, I'll call them carabiners. That's the only word coming to mind. He puts the things in the mountain and he makes a path for us. And then he comes back down that mountain by his spirit. And he comes alongside of us and he says, left foot there, right foot there, keep going, keep going. What this last benediction reminds us so beautifully is it says, he equips you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. (laughs) That metaphor breaks down. I realized this this week, that metaphor breaks down if it doesn't include one more reality, which is in all of the exhaustion, in all of the straining, in all of the striving of that image, Even that part of it isn't us. Even the energy to climb does not come from us. Even the straining and striving is a gift. The fact that we have energy to pull upward. The fact that when we feel utterly lost and want to give up the climb, and in fact, take our hands off the mountain, the fact that we remain connected is a gift. And the fact that it's possible to then reattach to it and to say, okay, maybe I've fallen back a little bit, 
but one foot in front of the other. It's God working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that we please God? Isn't that amazing? I mean, do you really believe that? You might believe that some other people please God. But do you believe that if you are a follower of Jesus, and you've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life, that your stumbling, imperfect, whiny, complaining, ridiculous climb, God looks down and goes, I love it. I love it. She's doing it. She's doing the thing. And what we're saying down there is, I'm doing it really poorly. I'm horrible at this. I don't know what I'm doing. And he says, I love it. One foot in front of the other. I love it. And we say, I'm done. I'm out. He says, I know you think you are. But I've got you. I've got you. He's delighted by our imperfect stumbling. Right? Like He is delighted I want to say this over some of you. He's delighted that some of you showed up today. He's like, they're there. They put their hand back on the wall. Some of you have had every reason to release. And we have some who are released right now. And I like to believe God is still absolutely holding them. And then we have some who have come back. <laughs> right? Not to the church. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking to, uh, to, to actually allowing Jesus to, to re-engage your life. Whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be here. But when we reattach, he goes, I love it pleases his heart. This is, again, where whatever comes to mind, right? Like some of us grew up with parents. Some of us grew up with coaches. Some of us grew up with teachers who the only thing acceptable was perfection. Perfection or nothing. And when you do a good job, they'd say, well, don't let up. Don't get complacent. Keep trying harder. Ooh, that's really good. You know what would be better? Do you know that that is not the voice of God? That is the voice of broken, imperfect, human authority in your life. It's not the voice of God. When we put one foot in front of the other, God says, I am so pleased. Full stop. Amazing. Yeah, he wants to help us keep going. But it's just not about that, right? He's happy you're alive. He's happy that there's breath in your lungs. And he's happy that you're willing to trust him with the climb. Ultimately, it's about his glory. It's not ours. He delights over this because it brings him glory. All of this is through Jesus Christ, only made possible by him. That should be where the letter ends. I, I kind of love that it doesn't. kind of love that it ends what seems like anticlimactically. Um, this is almost certainly an add-on after he's like, nailed it, right? Like you can picture him like finishing off the letter, signing it in a flourish. And then he's like, Oh, I've got to tell him about Timothy, right? Like, and he only has so much parchment, he can't like resend an email, he can't like, you know, text the group me and just be like, oh, by the way. Uh, so he puts it on at the end. But here's what I, let me tell you what I love about it. Let me read it first. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Love that. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see, I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So first thing he says is, I, I, this is what I picture is, he's like, oh, I have to add a thing or two. Oh, it's going to make it seem long, which I love. It's like, now it's going to seem long. What he says is, bear with my word of exhortation. Really, it's funny that that's the translation in the ESV. Every other translation picks up. The word here is really encouragement, of comfort. Um, it's that word. As hard as this is, as challenged as we have been, 
everything that he is saying, he's saying, this is meant to comfort you. This is meant to encourage you. That being called out of spiritual complacency into spiritual engagement, being called out of our meager imaginations that only see what's in front of us and having a sanctified imagination that's actually able to see beyond the reality of this world into these enormous spiritual realities around us. That's a comforting thing. That's an encouraging thing. That's the whole reason why I wrote I'm not coming down on you. I'm trying to lift you up, help you put one foot in front of the other in spite of all of the extraordinary circumstances around you. This is always the purpose of the word of God. Even the hardest challenge you will ever receive, the most convicting thing that you will ever receive, because it is for your good, should be ultimately seen as an encouragement. Or uh, let me say this, will ultimately be seen one day as an encouragement to you. This is why we have to say both really encouraging things to each other and really hard things to each other. Because at the end of the day, it's all encouragement. Because walking in what God actually calls us to is always the best thing for one another. So you're always encouraging one another. Now the tone in which we do it and all those things, I caveat this to death, is like, yeah, there's a way to be super discouraging with a brother or sister. Take relational discipleship and you'll learn how to not be that. But, um, but the point here is he sees it all as encouragement. And what he says is in, endure it. Uh, this is one of the author's favorite words. He's saying there's a kind of endurance it takes to sit under the word of God long enough to let it do its thing. Some of us can't sit through a 40-minute sermon. It's too much, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not hating on you. I, and by the way, you might be tired today, and that's fine. I'm, you can sleep or whatever. But if that's because you can't, you can't even focus long enough spiritually to allow God to speak, that you don't come here with any expectation that what's said here, more importantly, what's said here, might actually be addressed to you, He's saying, you, you got to get a little more perseverance. You got to be a little bit more, to use the, the language of the sermon, you got to be resilient. You got to sit under the word and say, okay, God, what is it today? Or else you're missing out on the word of encouragement for today. And I just love that he says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Uh, this is almost certainly the Timothy, Paul's protege, the Timothy who wrote the letters. Um, we actually don't hear this. This is why it's kind of the best argument for why this isn't the Apostle Paul is because you hear nothing of Timothy's imprisonment, even in Paul's final letter. But uh, we don't hear about this, uh, except here is that Timothy himself actually ended up in prison, Paul's protege, Paul who spent many years in prison. Protege ends up in the same place that he did, but he's released here. And he basically says, if he gets me soon enough, when, when I come back to you guys, he'll, he'll be with me. I hope that that's the case. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. By the way, I love that those are two separate things. Greet all your leaders, and by your leaders, I mean the true saints among you. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's saying, greet all leaders, and you know who the saints are? Everybody else, right? I love that. I love that to say, we're all saints, right? There might be some leaders. That comes and goes in, in a community. We're all saints. That's crazy. Grace be with all of you. Oh, those who come from Italy send you greetings. Uh, whatever, that's an interesting thing. That might be like those who come from Italy. Remember, he's away from them. It might be that the church is in Italy. And so he's saying those who came from where you guys are. Or it might just be, y'all have some friends. This is like, you know, your friends from the city. Say what's up. Um, or whatever, you know, in a church like ours. What I love here is this is all so mundane. It's, a, it's seemingly anticlimactic. Here's what I love, though, is that sometimes we think that the scriptures are written to like... I don't know, these first century monks or something who are all chanting all day and like, give us more word of God. And then it like comes and they're like, this is for, oh, thanks, Trey. Um, this is for us, right? Like, and, and they're, not, they're not people. These are people. These are people who are like, I wonder if Timothy's still in prison. I 
hope he's not. Wonder how our friends up in Italy are doing. I wonder if anyone's heard from them. I love that it ends here because all of these amazing realities, the truth of who God is, they land in like actual communities with people with real names, with people with real everyday concerns. It's, it's, it's just folk, right? Like it's just, it's just people. And yet it lands in those communities and it does a thing. And it ends up being the, the word of God itself. It ends up being a testimony to God's purposes and ways and works in the world. And so let's not see this as a too far off just because the writer here is, is taking us to levels in our imagination that we can't naturally get to. This is meant to land in central New Jersey in 2021 in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of uh, Democrats and Republicans, in the midst of mass non-mass, in the midst of a storm, in the midst of loss of property, in the midst of your stuff, in the midst of the kids are going back to school, are they going to have to go home, are they going to have to go in virtual? This stuff belongs here with us. This stuff is for us. This stuff is meant to transform not just your Sunday, not just how, how enthusiastic you are to sing the song at the end of this gathering. It's meant to impact Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and on and on and on. The mundane stuff of life. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who made your faith possible, the one who's bringing it to the end. Journey with him. You're in wilderness now. It's really, really hard for the follower of Jesus. And yet where you are going, there is a crowd, there is millennia of people saying, it's worth it, it's worth it. For you, your name, your story, the particularities of your challenges and brokenness, they're screaming to you saying, it's worth it, it's worth it, because he's worth it. You have no idea what you sacrifice when you give away what is only available in Christ. Don't lay it at the altar. Don't lay him at the altar. Lay yourself at the altar and find that he is the one who can bring you to life and move you forward. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the God of peace. Thank you that you are the one who works in us what pleases you, your will. God, make us a people who, in the everyday realities of life, fix our eyes on Jesus. Make us a people of whom one another can say and the world can say, yeah, they really love Jesus. And it makes a difference. It makes them different. And that difference is going to look different in each and every one of our circumstances in life. But Lord, I pray that we would be a community of difference and that that difference would ultimately be that our eyes are set on you, that we're listening to your voice, that we're submitting to you, that we're allowing the word of God to have its work in our life and then putting one foot in front of the other, believing that where we are headed is worth everything we have. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.